This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Have you ever inherited anything? The farm at Peppertree Crossing is not only the title of Laney Kelsall's debut novel, but it is also the inheritance. Welcome, Laney. Thank you very much, Jen. We first meet Ronnie walking home at night, hearing footsteps behind her, but she's ready to defend herself if she has to. Tell us a bit more about this 29-year-old Ronnie. Ronnie is a, a very sad product of the foster system gone wrong. She's had a tough life, although she doesn't recognise it as such. It's just what it is. She's very prickly and defensive. She looks after herself she trusts in no one, but she looks to no one to help her at all. She's completely self-sufficient in her own mind and she thinks that's all she needs from life. We know she's kindly. She rescued a kitten. Now, eight years on, Scritches fondly rules her life. She has a neighbour whom she gets medication and also sometimes food for, although she really can't afford it. How does she react to lawyers ringing her, wanting for her to make an appointment with them. She initially thinks that it's a mistake or a hoax call and they're just after her couple of thousand dollars worth of savings, which she thinks is fairly hilarious. So she has ignored the initial calls. And when she eventually discovers that the lawyer does want to see her, she's dumbfounded and still basically believes that it's an error, that they have somebody by the same name, but it's definitely not her story they're telling. She's amazed to find out that she has a family that knew about her for the last 29 years. Her aunt Marion has written her a number of letters. What does the first one want her to do? The first letter basically tells her that she stands to inherit a property, but she simply has to come and view the property, which Ronnie, of course, thinks, well, that's a no-brainer. She's found herself in a bit of a hard situation. She looks set to lose her job and her house, so inheriting a property is perfect. However, she discovers that that property is in South Australia and Ronnie's actually in Sydney, and that's further than she's ever travelled in her life and quite inconceivable to her. Well, she does agree to travel there. She goes to the edge of the wheat fields of South Australia and the farmhouse, when she finally gets there, is out of the town, no mobile phone service, and she arrives just before nightfall. And is the quote from the book, darkness and a hell of a lot of it, not a single pinprick of light. The isolation trailed icy fingers down her spine. How was it possible to see so far, yet see nothing. But then in the morning, and this is where I'd like Lani to read from her book, she sees the sunrise. Yes, so Ronnie's just woken up and she's reflecting on the difference between what she can see now. And she thinks, caged by the suburbs, she had never had a view to the horizon, not cluttered by houses and buildings never witnessed a sunrise that wasn't imprinted with silhouettes of man-made structures. Arms wrapped across her stomach, she watched, spellbound, until the sun had fully emerged from beyond the distant hills, hanging pendulous in the sky like an overripe apricot. <laughs> On this day, she meets the farm manager, Matt Kruger. He's got the neighbouring farm and she's suspicious of his intentions 
especially after he gives her another letter from her aunt. This letter is all about self-sufficiency. What does she have to do to gain the inheritance? She believes with the appearance of what is only the second letter in what will be a series of letters that she just needs to do some very basic tasks or she thinks they're basic at the time, which will lead to self-sufficiency. And she sees it as quite ridiculous, not recognising that her Aunt Marion, who's left the letters, is actually trying to teach her something. So basically she has to learn to cultivate her aunt's 80-year-old sourdough culture and bake sourdough bread, which is nothing like putting bread mix in a bread maker, I can assure you, though Ronnie's not even capable of bread mix in a bread maker baking. Uh, she needs to build a vegetable garden, look after the animal her aunt has left behind, basically work towards becoming more self-sufficient and also feeling a little more control of her, in control of her life. And Matt offers a lot of help and she always refuses it. This one time around, well, she has the, the seedlings that she's bought, vegetables that she doesn't even eat. She plants those, you know, overplants them, then tries to put up a fence because the pet sheep called goat. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, and, uh, of course, Matt builds one for her, but she doesn't really appreciate anything he does. No, Ronnie's very distrustful. She's learnt to be distrustful. She has to be to protect herself. And that's actually a bit of a double-edged sword because she's naturally distrustful, particularly of men, but more so towards Matt because she believes that he might have an in to securing the property and basically stealing it from her. There was also a stipulation in the letter for Ronnie to hand rear a calf. And this mm -hmm. is another reason to fail in Matt's eyes. What did Ronnie do wrong? Well, Matt says that he will go and arrange the potty for her, but Ronnie is so intent on proving her independence, she decides that she can go to the farmer's market and arrange for that calf herself. So she tootles off there, meets a farmer who's quite happy to supply a calf and doesn't even seem to be charging for it, which is very odd. Farmer delivers the calf, Matt drops around and is very amused to find that she will have some trouble milking this calf that she's supposed to hand rear as a milker because she's purchased a bobby calf, not a potty calf. <laughs> but Matt wasn't the only one to have letters from Marion for Ronnie. Marion's best friend, Tracy, who lives in town, has one. Now, what are the, some of the things Ronnie has asked to do now? Tracy is very much a mother hen figure. She's a lovely lady, one of my favourite characters in the book. Uh, she's very caring, very nurturing, and she's actually Marion's lifelong partner. And she is basically given a nurturing role. She's to help Ronnie by introducing her to the Country Women's Association, the CWA, where Ronnie has a task to do, whether it be sewing, crafting or baking, which Marion has designed as a way to integrate Ronnie with the community. But Ronnie sees it as just another hurdle that she's supposed to jump, you know, tick this box. It's done. I can inherit. Yeah. Ronnie wants the inheritance and she needs to be financially secure. She, she has a secret. Rue. She does. Who is Rue? You want to tell? Rue. Yeah, yeah, no, you can tell who Rue is. Um, Ronnie's discovered that she's pregnant very early in the book. But she, although she's been with her partner for quite a long time, she discovers that 
He has secrets in his past and has no intention of raising children. She is adamant that her child must have the best life possible. So everything she does from that point forward is for her baby, who she nicknames Rue, and for Scritches, her cat, who she adores. <laughs> but she's not the only one with secrets. The town of Settlers Bridge knows about her and her mother. But what's the general thought about her mother, Denise? What do what does most of the locals think about her? Denise is not very well loved or understood in the town because she has um, what would be considered to be um, delusions of grandeur. She's not interested in being in a farming community. Her sister refers to her as the town bike because she has something of a reputation. So she's quite a wealthy woman, but she's always lived doing what she wants. Although her storyline does go somewhat deeper than that because mm. I didn't want her to be no. just an unsympathetic character. She does have reasons for being the way that she is. Even lovely old mother hen Tracy has warned Ronnie that she is now, quote, wealthy enough to stir maternal affection within Denise's frozen heart. Well, it takes some time, but Ronnie does find out who her father is and why she was put up for fostering rather than adoption. Denise explains, I've never married because I never found a man I believed was good enough to be your father. And a suggestion, I've had a, the best idea. I am headed to Europe next month. Why don't we go together? How does Ronnie take this idea? Ronnie is trying to fight down her eagerness she's never wanted to know her parents they didn't want to know her why should she want to know them that's the face she presents to the world but of course deep down she has a desire to be nurtured she has a desire to be loved so this opening up of her mother towards her seems like it could be her dreams come true and she's trying to control her eagerness to accept this offering but she is being won over by her mother's delight in their new relationship yeah, Ronnie wants the best, especially to give Rue a family and thinks of telling Denise about her pregnancy. And at this moment I'm reading, I'm, I'm saying, oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> and I'm only the reader. Well, the CWA is a hotbed of gossip and competition for the best lamingtons. We get Tracy's secret of lamington making and the most interesting sandwich that Matt makes for a picnic. Honestly, <laughs> Lanny, how did you get this type of sandwich? Just explain what's in it, please. <laughs> okay, it's basically a liverwurst sandwich, oh. but <laughs> the title of the book was originally Liverwurst and Lamingtons, but um, oh. Ellen and Umland, for some reason, just did not want to fly with that. But a liverwurst sandwich is a slice of crusty bread with butter and then liverwurst paste on it, fresh tomato and potato chips on top. And my dad gives that to us when we go out to the farm on weekends. Ah, uh -huh. So, well, mentioning Matt and a picnic, well, there, there's a little bit of romance here with the objective of everybody deserving love. But really what you've got here is some well-written angst. Ronnie's panic attack in the room of three men. This is on page 289. Luke turned the TV up and the guys settled further back on the lounge alongside her. So close she could feel their pulses, hear their two rapid heartbeats, smell their sweaty excitement. Darkness fringed her vision. The bowl slipped in her grasp. Her toes curled, cramping against the straps of her sandals. Her stomach turned to rock. 
If she moved, tried to stand to escape, they would shove her face down on the lounge, bury her screams in the cushions as they turned up the TV. She knew how it went. No, there was no need for this, no reason to let the memories in. Except she could taste the blood in her mouth. She could hear the screams, her screams. Heart racing, she couldn't breathe. The hands came faster, pretending they were reaching for snacks, but reaching for her, threatening to brush her legs, her thighs. Closer, closer. Any second now, the touching would start. Her breath sobbed in her throat. Her jaw ached as the first scream clawed for escape. Chips avalanched over the edge of the bowl. Ronnie? Matt stood in front of her, holding out a drink. Though he blocked the TV screen, shut off the glaring images that triggered her brain, she couldn't speak. Could only stare at him as she dragged at the air for oxygen that didn't exist. He set the glass on the coffee table with a crack that should have snapped her out of her the miasma of terror. It didn't. Nothing could. She was trapped, just like she'd been all those years ago. Nothing had changed. Nothing was better. A kid again. She was unable to protect herself, unable to fight back, unable to speak out. Panic oozed in, as thick as tar, crushing her chest. She knew how to combat it. Breathe and count. But the numbers wouldn't come. Nothing would come except the memories, blinding flashes of light in the dark room, scars from her past ripping apart her future. Oh, Lanny Castle, fantastic. No wonder that this manuscript came out of the slush pile and got published. So just explain how that happened. Yeah, that was, that was a lovely story because it was all so fast. Um, I don't normally write in this genre and I had pitched it to um, the Friday pitch at Alan and Unwin, just sent it in on a whim. And within four days, I had an email saying, could you please send us the full manuscript because you only send a few chapters. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll do that. Wish I'd proofread it a bit better, but okay. And a couple of days later, I had uh, another email saying, send us your bio. And within two weeks, I had a signed contract. Well, it doesn't surprise me. The farmer pepper tree crossing, a traumatic past and an unexpected inheritance may mean future security, but what will Ronnie have to give up or gain to get it? Leonie Kelsall has written with heart, humour and hope in her rural romance, The Farm at Pepper Tree Crossing. Thank you, Leonie. Thank you very much, Jane. From rural romance to drugs, guns and lies with David. The consequences of working as an undercover cop endure longer than the time spent masquerading as a drug dealer or criminal. Keith Banks tackles the repercussions of his time working for the drug squad in Queensland in his account, Drugs, Guns and Lies. So Keith, welcome to 3CR. Thanks Dave, thanks for having me on. There's a great deal of social history here. I mean, Queensland in the 70s and 80s was about to radically change. In fact, what you've got written here, the 1980s was a time of contradiction and ambiguity, both in Queensland and its police force. As police commissioner, Terry Lewis was supposed to represent the justice of the law, but history records his place as part of a statewide corruption ring. Queensland was a 
drastic place back then. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting, all right. I joined as a police cadet the year I turned 17, so I left home at 16. I went to the academy, and when I arrived at the academy, I had an idea of what to expect, uh, paramilitary, etc. Didn't quite know uh, how it was going to go, but uh, I had two years in that area being socialised is probably the best word, into being a police officer in Queensland. We were never really prepared for what the reality was. One of the first things I heard when I uh, finally left the academy and went to a police station was, forget everything you learned there, I will tell you what to do. There were rumours around Terry Lewis and the Rat Pack, as it was called. No one really openly spoke about it, and, and that really showed me very quickly that no one knew who to talk to and who to trust. And that was an environment that, that I quickly realised was uh, one that you'd have to swim through in order to survive. The interesting thing then is you, you mentioned how you came through the academy, but your own life and upbringing is talked about in this work, and you were raised uh, by a stepfather who was physically violent. And there seemed to be parallels here. You had good role models in uncles and people like that. But then your upbringing, in many ways, was mirrored in the police force because there was violence in the police force as well as people who could support you as well. Yeah, that's actually a very good point. To be honest with you, I hadn't thought about that, but that's a great analogy. Yeah, I, I was... Uh, my mother remarried when I was six years old, and uh, and both my mother and my stepfather are now passed away. My mother was a wonderful woman, but she was a victim of those times. There, there was no escape from for battered women and, and abused women in those days. You know, the family law court, I don't think, existed. So she was she was in a position where she had to stay in a marriage like that. And, yeah, I, I was raised in quite a, um, a mentally and physically abusive household. So I was actually happy to get away. And for me, the uh, the police force became a surrogate family. But as you point out, within that surrogate family, there were people that I had to walk around on eggshells as well. Your naivety comes through in this work as well. Mm. Early <laughs> on, you wonder where the massage tables are in the massage parlours. <laughs> How on earth did you get involved in undercover work, given that naivety? <laughs> David, when I wrote this, I wrote it raw and unsanitised. I didn't want it to be construed as any heroic work because that's not how the real world operates, even though I was decorated for, for certain things later. Um, but it's not about that. It's about, yeah, I, I guess that evolution from a very naive country kid to after I finished undercover, I was a completely different person. Um, I was uh, I was idealistic without doubt. As strange as this sounds, I had been inspired when I read the true story of Frank Serpico, who was an, uh, a narcotics detective in New York City, who exposed uh, a massive amount of corruption in the I think it was the early 70s, and uh, and I was inspired by what he did, his ethics, his integrity, and also the fact that he was he was an undercover cop. He was out there on the street um, masquerading as a drug dealer and a criminal. So when I realised that there was an opportunity to do that in Queensland, I naively volunteered for it, expecting that I'd be able to do it very easily. And that wasn't the case. It was a pretty steep learning curve. There are ethical and moral concerns associated with this type of work. You make a point of mentioning Shane, who you see taking drugs for the first time, but you cannot intervene 
as you're on an operation to break a wider distribution ring. That sort of compromise is troubling. Yeah, it was actually heartbreaking. My cover was that I was a, a major heroin dealer in Brisbane and I was uh, on the Gold Coast sourcing suppliers. And uh, I think I was down there for about three or so months. And my entire days were full of making contacts, buying drugs, buying heroin specifically. And, and during this, I'd met Shane, who I thought was about 17 or 18. He was a little surfer kid. I realised later he was 14 and he was in a house one night when two females that I'd been scoring from actually uh, injected him with heroin. And to stand there and watch that was more than confronting. There's nothing I could have done to intervene. And what what is heartbreaking is that I kept track of him years later. He, he died of a heroin overdose when he was 18. And that's something I again wanted to write about both as a catharsis and try to have people understand that being a cop is multi-layered, particularly an undercover one. Um, and that's, you know, that happened over 40 years ago and also around 40 years ago. And it hasn't, it just hasn't left me. But that in many ways is part of the book. It's where you begin with this book uh, in terms of a lot of the, a lot of your colleagues who worked undercover are still coming to terms with their experience. I mean, many of those involved became paranoid. You never knew who you could trust, uh, whether you'd be found out or even if you could rely on your own police force. Absolutely right. The only people we could rely on, we learned very quickly, were each other. And again, to put some um, perspective on it, I guess, David, we have to remember we were all kids. I, I was 21 when I joined and I was 23. This is undercover. I mean, I was 23 when I finished. So most of us were around that sort of 22, 23, 24. So we were young, we were young kids and we could only rely completely on each other. And you're right, there's a, a friend of mine who I won't say where he is, um, but he certainly lives overseas. He doesn't come back to Australia. He's, um, he's, a, he's a massive victim of PTSD and he lives off the grid. I have listed other mates of mine in that front part of the, the book. They know who they are. I haven't mentioned them by name. But the, the one that I really wanted to bring to the public attention was uh, the story of Harry. Now, Harry has given me his full authority to use his real name in this book. He, within 12 months of working, became addicted to heroin. He was on a job in North Queensland where he was in a situation where he had to inject, and he developed a habit as a result of it. But worse than that, it's my firm belief he was supplied with heroin by some corrupt detectives in the drug squad to keep him addicted because it suited their opportunity to put him into networks where other undercovers couldn't go because we just refused to use heroin, obviously. They cynically used him. Then he was quietly paid out. Um, with no welfare, no support, and um, he used all that money on heroin, and, and he was uh, he then embarked on a, a series of armed robberies to get money to feed his addiction, all as a direct result of his job. Well, that would seem to suggest that the police force didn't know what they were doing when they sent young 21, 22-year-olds into such areas, such arenas. It, it was very, very amateurish. Things changed pretty quickly in the mid-80s, I suppose. Um, I, I became one of the first instructors on the covert police course. So uh, I was able to speak from experience and actually ensure as best I could that those volunteering for covert or undercover work were trained and equipped properly to deal with it. But up until that point, yeah, there'd, there'd been nothing. Often we'd be, uh, we'd be sent away somewhere, let's say Cairns again, 
if you were sent to Cairns by yourself, you'd uh, you'd be up there for a couple of months, and the only instructions were: here's a truckload of cash in in a bank account, here's your guns, and uh, off you go. Give us a call when you've got something. So you could literally have been lying in a gutter somewhere for a week, and no one would have known where you were. As a final question to round this up, hmm. how cathartic has the the writing of this book been? in enabling you to come to terms with what you've been through? It'd been incredibly cathartic. I, I actually wrote a, uh, a very large manuscript. Um, and as I said, I never intended it to be published. It was really written for my daughters to help them understand why they'd seen who I was as they were growing up with all of the you know, the symptoms and, and, and the outcomes of PTSD. This is the first half of the manuscript, literally. The second half is when I moved into a tactical arena and was involved in gun battles and lost a couple of colleagues and so on. And that will form a sequel in due course. The whole thing was incredibly cathartic. I'm in the best place now emotionally and mentally I've been for a long time. And and I, I think a great deal of that is due to being able to put this in writing. And secondly, to actually have it published and have the incredible feedback I've had thus far. It's It's really empowering. And the support it actually provides your colleagues as well. Um, I interviewed a, a Vietnam veteran uh, who wrote a book, Well Done Those Men, mm. and he's sort of become a spokesperson for those in similar situations, addressing the unspoken. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's really the main objective I have in, in um, promoting the book is to try and have people start an authentic conversation around the casualties that specialist policing, but also general policing creates in, in people. Police are human beings, they're not robots, and, and they see things that civilians don't see, thank God, but that comes at a cost. So if, if I can be part of starting an authentic conversation around that and, and also starting to address the epidemic of police suicides in this country, then um, you know I, I think that's a worthwhile thing. Well, the book is Drugs, Guns and Lies. The author is Keith Banks, with the help of Ben Smith, and it's an Alan an Unwin release. So, Keith, thank you very much for talking with me today. I really appreciate you having me on, David. Thank you very much. Well, Jan, that takes us out for another week. And look, more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with. Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, we will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week. See you then. Well, let's Bye. talk then. <laughs> <laughs> Listen in next week. Bye for now. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.